This morning we were in Matthew chapter 1, where it tells us Jesus is the son of two people. Who were they? Two other people. <laughs> He's the son of David and Abraham. Good job, Ben. Thank you. David and Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. Who is the son of Abraham? Uh, immediate son. Isaac. <laughs> and what happened to Isaac? I tried to. Got real close. <laughs> Almost sacrificed Isaac, and what happened instead? God provided. Then David, who's David? What? He's a king. Jesus has royal blood in him, and that's what we looked at this morning in um, a remarkable way. God was able to combine two things that we desperately needed in one man, his son, a king, and a sacrifice. And this morning, we're going to focus on Abraham specifically because this promise that we have that um, comes all the way back from Genesis chapter 12. So let's start out by reading that. It says in verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, which was his name at the time, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Uh, on the playground, there's a saying, cross my heart and what? Hope to die. And what were we saying then? We were saying, when we made a promise, what? We meant it, right? If we broke that promise, we would expect something bad to happen. Actually, the original phrase was a little bit longer, cross my heart, hope to die. Oh, that's the worst. It, why do kids think something like that up? I mean, that, that just has to be the worst thing in the world. That's about as bad as it gets. And the point is, you know, kids, they understand the importance of promises. As children, we learn that promises are important. They need to be kept, and God teaches that to us as well. And, and repeatedly, over and over, he shows us that if we make a promise, we need to keep it. And when he makes a promise, he will keep it. And in the Bible, one of the most significant kinds of a promises is a covenant. What is a covenant? A contract? No. Promise? Agreement. Agreement? Anything else? Any other ideas? Covenant was the kind of promise that God made with Abraham later, Abra, or Abram later, Abraham. God promised Abraham that if he left his home and he took his family, what? That he would be blessed in a significant way. And there are some people who think that the Old Testament covenants, they're just contracts. They're just like modern day contracts. And in a sense, that is true. But covenants were like contracts on steroids. Back in um, Bible days, people would talk about cutting a covenant. And if you cut a covenant with someone, you would go through this elaborate ceremony where you would literally cut an animal in two. You're not just signing on the dotted line. 
you're killing something for this covenant. The parts were placed uh, a few feet apart, creating a path between the pieces of the dead animal, and the two parties of the covenant would walk between those two dead parts. They were essentially declaring, may I be like this dead animal if I ever break this promise? Stick a needle in my eye, right? This is what will happen if I break this promise. Genesis 15 uh, describes how God cut his covenant with Abram. He says in verse 9, So he said to him, Bring to me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two, right down the middle, and placed each side opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward they shall come with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Rephraim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. And God was declaring to Abram, May I be like these animals, cut in two, separated, if I ever break my promise. It was God's way of saying, cut my, or uh, cross my heart, stick a needle in my eye, hope to die, whatever it is. Except God's covenant with Abraham, it wasn't child's play, it wasn't something trivial. This was a deadly, serious vow. It was God's way of saying, I will keep this promise. And that's important to us for at least two reasons. First, whenever God makes a promise, he intends to keep it. Covenants were God's way of dramatically driving home just how serious his promises were and how committed God was to fulfilling what he's promised. Isaiah 46, 11 says, what I have said that I will bring about. What I have planned that will I do. In other words, if I said it, I will do it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul tells us no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God in the New International Version. God will keep his promises. And his promises here in Genesis 12, they were exciting to Abraham. And they should be exciting to us because Abraham was a man who really wasn't that different from us. Who really was Abraham or Abram at this point? What was he doing? Any ideas? How old was he? 75 years old? Okay. What's he done with those 75 years? Uh, many of us aren't lucky to get that many years. I mean, what did he accomplish in that time? Was he a great warrior? No. Was he a great theologian? Did he write a lot of books? No. Even after he didn't write any of the, the Bible books, were, none of them were written by him. And yet Abraham, he was one of the greatest men that we know in the Old Testament. Only Jesus Maybe Moses, uh, Elijah maybe, are, are more highly regarded in Scripture than he is. So what did Abraham do that was so worthy of that focus? 
He was faithful. How was he faithful? Absolutely. Any other examples we can think of where Abraham was faithful? Right here in Genesis 12, the Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, uh, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And that's it. God asked him to go and he went. Abram packed up his tent, he put his wife on a camel, and off he goes. Hebrews 11.8, it says, by faith Abraham, let's see if I have this, yep, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went. That's what the writer of Hebrews says that uh, how he was faithful, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That is it. God said, move and stay, and Abraham moved and he stayed. It doesn't sound particularly impressive to me, and yet God said to Abraham to be one of the major heroes in Scripture because he moved. You know, what's so impressive about that? What is so impressive uh, about Abraham that he holds a, such a prominent place in Scripture is that he trusted God, that he had faith in God. Romans 4, 9 says that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, and that should excite us because this unextraordinary, thoroughly unextraordinary man was made extraordinary through God. We don't have to be important in this world for God to want to use us. We don't have to be, uh, have an impressive resume for God to, to work through us, and we don't have to be smart or rich or powerful or any of the other things that, like we read in Ecclesiastes, the world seems to chase after. All we have to do is fear God and keep his commandments. We have to trust God, believe in God, have faith in God, because God keeps his promises. Second Chronicles 16.9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. All God wants is for us to know him. So do we trust him enough to let him work in our lives? Will we let him lead us where he wants us to go? And will we let him remake us and rework us so that he can use us? Uh, the story goes about a CEO of a prominent airline company. Um, he got hired on straight out of Purdue University. And when they hired him, they told him, we're glad you graduated from Purdue. It proves that you are a responsible and committed young man. But you may as well know there's nothing they've taught you that will help us. We're going to have to retrain you with the skills you'll need here. And he had gone to Purdue for four years. He studied hard. He'd gotten top grades. He faithfully attended all his classes. And yet virtually nothing he learned matter because he went to Purdue. Doesn't surprise me at all. But in the same way, it doesn't matter what strengths we think we have. We go somewhere and we think we have all these answers. We think we've got it all figured out, but we end up there and we realize we don't know anything at all. Doesn't matter how skilled or clever or rich or powerful we are. Those things, they don't impress most people, they certainly don't impress God. God isn't looking at our resume. He's looking at whether or not he can trust us to move when he says move. All God wants to know is if he asks us something, will we do it? Do we trust him enough to go where 
he sends us and do what he asks. So the first thing that God's covenant with Abraham should teach us is that if God gives us a promise, he will keep it. And all he's looking for from us is to trust that. Faith is when we trust God to do exactly what he has promised. Romans 4 says Abraham was fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This wasn't a a loose belief. This wasn't going out on a limb. Faith was being fully persuaded. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness, Romans 4, 21 through 22. Abraham believed God had the power to do what he had promised, and that's what it's all about. Do we believe that God will keep his promises. In fact, that's exactly what Hebrews 11.6 says uh, faith is. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. We have to believe in God, but more than that, we have to believe that he keeps his promises. Faith is believing that God will do what he has promised that he will do. Uh, Second thing we can learn from this promise in Genesis 12 is that this covenant with Abraham is the covenant of the Bible. You know, all the other promises, all the other covenants, they flow, they hinge on this guarantee from God. For example, God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you in Genesis 12, 3. God was telling Abraham, I'll take care of you. People, they're going to hurt you, they're going to curse you, people might bless you too, but I've got your back nevertheless. Jesus said, if anyone gives you a cup of cold water to one of the little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward in Matthew 10, 42. In other words, I will bless those who bless you. Paul wrote, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you in our uh, letters to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. In other words, God will curse those who curse you. God will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, you and I, we have the same promise that Abraham had because this is a promise that God has made to all. And a promise he made to Abraham is God knew he would experience trouble in this world and God wanted to drive home that he loved this man so much that he would protect him. And Jesus tells us the same thing. The promise holds true and it's the promise that was originally given to Abraham. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Same promise and same God. God makes this promise to us because, like Abraham, we are now a covenant people. We are held to this promise that God has given to humankind. We are uh, people that God has made promises to, but why? Why are we a covenant people? He gave a covenant to Abraham specifically, Uh, but why do we get in on this? What makes us so special that God would make us promises like he made to Abraham. Okay, or his people. I'm not of the nation of Israel. I think I, what is it, 0.03, Lauren, that I've got uh, Eskenazi Jew that I did the ancestry test. So I, I wasn't part of the chosen people. I was thoroughly a Gentile. How do we have those? How, how, how are we able to enter a covenant? Because there's lots of people who tried and they failed to enter a covenant with God. Through Christ. What? 
or we're grafted in. It's because of Jesus. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we have any promise from God. And, and this goes to the heart of what we want to focus on today. The promises God made to Abraham and Genesis, they pointed ultimately to Jesus. That's what we've been talking about all month, that this is the, the whole story of Jesus starts far earlier than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we often start. It starts all the way back here uh, in Genesis 1 and now Genesis 12. That's what Paul wrote in Galatians 3.16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ, Paul writes to the Galatians. Abraham was chosen by God to be the beginning of a long, or excuse me, Abraham was chosen by God to be the beginning of a long line of descendants that ultimately led to Jesus. And Matthew 1 starts out, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, uh, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and we could go on and on. God began Christ's genealogy in Matthew with Abraham, and one of the reasons God did this was so he could set up the paper trail for Christ. It was a paper trail that began with Abraham and will be re-emphasized over and over and over again to Christ's mortal ancestors. And if you were to look at the lives like we did this morning, the people who were part of Jesus' ancestry and Matthew and then in Mary's line and Luke, you'd find that over and over again, God promised several of them that the promised Messiah was going to come through their lineage and he held to that promise. It was a deliberate paper trail. And why would that be so important? Why is it so important that we have a paper trail for Christ? It shows us our God keeps his promises in the most elaborate way possible. We talked about all those circumstances, all those people um, and all that time that God had to go through in order to produce a Messiah from this line who was both our king and our sacrifice, we, we saw God is one who keeps his promises. It's important because 500 years before Christ, there is a man named Siddhartha born. And you know him better as Buddha. And centuries before Buddha was born, nobody ever said anything like he was going to be born and this is what he's going to look like, and this is how he's going to teach, and this is what he's going to do. No one ever said that about Buddha. About 500 years or so after Christ, there was a man named Muhammad born. But no one ever said a uh, thousand years before he was born what he was going to do or what he was going to look like or who his parents or grandparents or great-grandparents was going to be. He just popped into history, said things, he taught things. Um, they were accepted, and so a religion was found. But by contrast, when Jesus was born, there had already been centuries of buildup. His family was told about how he would live and how he would teach and how he would die and how he would rise from the dead. And Abraham became the, the linchpin of a long line of descendants that ultimately led to Christ. And that long line of descendants is one of the major proofs that God ha has always had this planned out. This was never um, a second thought for him. It was God's paper trail proving that Jesus wasn't just a, another world religious leader. He was the one sent by God. Now, one more thing. Let's see, I need to move forward a little bit. You know, the promise given to Abraham, it didn't just point to the coming of Jesus. God's promise to him pointed to the foundation of what Jesus came to do. This isn't just about 
genealogy and proving that, that Jesus was a historical figure. It goes so much deeper than that. The promise given uh, to Abraham in Matthew 1, God makes the, the genealogy of Christ start with Abraham. It doesn't go back to Adam or any of the people between Adam and Abraham. He might have. After all, Adam was the first man. He didn't go back to Noah or one of his sons. They restarted the human race after the flood. But no, God kicks off Christ's genealogy with Abraham. He picks up with a man born 300 years after Noah dies because Abraham did nothing to deserve God's promises. Abraham, he was not chosen because he was the first. He wasn't chosen because he was a great writer. He wasn't chosen because uh, he was a great warrior or, or thinker or any other thing. And the only reason why God chose Abraham was because Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, Romans 4.9. Abraham was chosen simply because he was willing to trust God and do what God said. And it was his willingness to believe God's promises. That's what made him impressive to God. God made Abraham the central focus of his promises because he wanted us to realize that centuries later now, Jesus would not save us because of who we are or what we've done or uh, anything else. Jesus would only save us because of what we believe and what we did in action to that belief. Jesus did not come to save the righteous. He came to save the lost. He came to heal the sick, not the ones who thought they were already well. In Romans 4.13, it says it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Abraham was important to God because his only claim to fame was his faith. That's why we, we call it the Hall of Fame of Faith sometimes in Hebrews 11. That was all Abraham had. God called him to do something, and Abraham had faith. You see, too many people, we get the impression that God is going to be impressed with us. If we can do enough or be enough or, or learn enough that God will be impressed with us. We believe that God will accept us because we're pretty nice people. Or uh, maybe we haven't always been nice, but we, we started having some New Year's resolutions. We're getting nicer. We're becoming better, right? And that's going to be enough for God. God's going to accept us because maybe we can outweigh the evil in our lives with good. We believe that if we can just do uh, a little bit more, we can be pleasing and acceptable to God, and our own self-righteousness can find us a place in eternity. But God says it doesn't work that way. God was going to save us, not because of righteous things, as Titus, or it says in Titus, uh, things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, Titus 3, 5 through 6, Paul writes. And the only way you or, and I will ever make it into heaven will be by the promise of the blood of Jesus. It's by trusting that there is a God and that he exists and that he, uh, he, he protects those who trust him. Centuries ago, thousands of Jews stood outside the temple courts and they heard a man named Peter confront them about their sins. And his sermon was so convicting that they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We read that often as we get to the end of the sermon. But I want to read the next verse. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. In verse 39, God has made us a promise and he will keep it. 
Everything in history has been written so that we can know our God keeps his promises. So if you're ready to repent and be baptized, his promise stands even today, that you will be forgiven of your sins, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you're ready to accept that offer this evening, now's the time. Come to the front of the room as we stand and as we sing.